Having too much of something can have the same impact as not having enough. A caffeine doesn't give you ever, uh, extra energy. It just alters the perception of how you feel. And the best time to consume it is when you're feeling that mental fatigue. It's not, there's a time that you can take it too early in these mm. endurance events and that's what you don't want to do. You don't want to be running along in the first part of the event feeling, oh, I feel fantastic and running beyond the intensity that you plan to. Because you, you can easily do that because you, it, it, it's giving you a perceived perception of how you feel. And this is my Find Your Feet podcast. So we're back behind the microphone again, and I really hope that you enjoyed the recent episode on archetypes and the hero's journey. I came away from that conversation like definitely in two minds about how uh, how it would be embraced by the community. But uh, since then, I've had so many amazing emails and social media messages just discussing people's own experiences with archetypes and the hero's journey that they're on. So it definitely seemed to resonate with everyone. And I just can't thank people enough for really being human in this experience of hosting a podcast and reaching out and sharing your stories. It gives me a little bit of motivation to keep it going because I'd be lying to say that there are definitely some days when you kind of wonder whether or not it's it's hitting the audience and, and hitting the needs of the community. At the end of the day, I'm not here to promote my own self and my own, um, you know, I guess do an ego plug. What I'm really here to do is to, to hopefully change lives and change people's experiences with their goals and particularly when it comes to life and trail running. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed that episode, but I know that you're really, really going to enjoy and get a lot out of today's episode. And if you're new to the podcast, um, I hope this will be a really fantastic introduction to what it's all about. Because today I bring back Daryl Griffiths, who um, previously or was the founding director of Shots Sports Nutrition Australia. So it's an Australian sports nutrition company. But um, they've just gone through a major rebrand to Coda Nutrition and have picked up the key sponsorship for or nutrition sponsorship for the Ultra Trail Australia events, which are in the Blue Mountains in May next year. So six months away. Now, Daryl's been on the podcast and behind the microphone on two other occasions, but it felt like it was quite a long time ago. And I know that back then he was relatively new uh, in helping athletes in ultra running and trail running. So I knew that he would have learned a lot over time and, um, and also learn a lot about this event in particular. And I just felt that it was a really great case study for sports nutrition. So this episode is definitely relevant for you if you're not running these events. I know that you'll be able to apply the knowledge that we share with you to any of your events that you might be preparing for or even just your own adventures in general. And perhaps you're just curious about the physiology of what happens when you start shaking a stomach for a prolonged period of time. Um, but also I know that the athletes who are preparing for this event are really going to love the, the knowledge and depth that comes in this conversation. So you're six months away and why I bring this into the conversation now is that it gives you plenty of time to practice and practice and practice what you're going to do on the event day and to also be prepared to tweak and adapt things if it doesn't work out. Um, so you're going to get lots of tips there. And when I, oh, as I said to Daryl on this podcast, I think that 
if there's anything that is going to make the biggest difference to your your event day or your mission day if you're not doing this event it really is getting your head around and mastering sports nutrition like honestly you can have the best trained athletes in the world but if they're not mastering their nutrition it really will come unstuck very very quickly but having said that, obviously training is a huge part of preparing for such an event, whether it's the 22, the 50 or the 100 kilometer distance, it doesn't matter. Training, training, training and being consistent in that is going to be also critically important for you. So on that note, I just want to let you know that I now have training planners for the 22, the 50 and the 100 clay events for Ultra Trail Australia and they are event specific. So for $24, you get a a six month training planner that's highly detailed, even describes where you should be thinking about your sports nutrition, what gear you need to be getting at different points of this journey how you do your missions what the focus should be here's some thoughts some tips some tricks for you to follow along with so for $24 you get a six-month planet highly detailed spelling out the weeks of training but if you are a real beginner I also do have a new training planner which is for beginners who are stepping up from walking or jogging or maybe road running and want to ease themselves into this whole new novel concept of trail running these planners are also well this planner is also a six-month planner it's very very detailed and I really do think it's a very safe introduction for athletes who are stepping up to about that 30 kilometer distance or the four hour mark. So if you have a look at that, if you're not doing these events, maybe a 100 kilometer event is a little bit flatter. I do also have a new 100 kilometer training planner, again, a six month plan, but really ask you to drive the specificity whilst really giving you a lot of detailed informa- information about the, um, the actual training itself. But you would need to be thinking about what the challenges are for your event and embedding that into the plan. So that plan is also available on my website. Yep, so they're all there. They are definitely best paired with the guidebook you're going to get the absolute most bang for your bucks if you also grab a copy of my trail running guidebook and all of these resources are available on my own website so www.hannyalston.com.au um, just to let you know that wow amazingly our 2020 running tours all but sold out there are two places remaining on the french pyrenees tour in july 2020 and that one is very much an educational retreat where we're going to embed lots of learning into it so um if you're interested in coming to france uh, and apologies if you're interested in one of the other trips but they're sold out but if you're interested in joining us in france i would love to show you what really sparked my imagination to run the entire length of the french pyrenees earlier this year so also just a quick reminder and then we'll jump into this episode with daryl but all my listeners get 20 percent off their first order using the word podcast at checkout at my store find your feet we've also just opened a new store up in northern tasmania in launceston so you know it is an amazing resource there for anyone in the community who's looking to play wilder so jump across to our online store if you're listening from further afield www.findyourfeet.com.au so that's findyourfeet.com.au and enter the word podcast at checkout to get access to a 20% discount. And please, please, please just keep reaching out. Please send me some social media messages, engage with me, send me emails. I really want to hear what you're loving out of the podcast and what you also need to hear more of to help you to keep playing and performing wilder. So um, jump across to my website, reach out to me, love to hear from you. 
All right, I'm really ready to begin this conversation with Daryl. I feel honored that such a busy man continues to give me time to share his knowledge and and um, support uh, for you guys through this amazing trail running community that we have. So shall we jump into it? I think we should. Here's Daryl Griffiths on sports nutrition and mastering the Ultra Trail Australia 2020. just focus on UTA so to not be like as generalized as we've previously been yeah. in the episodes because I feel like it's without with what you're trying to do and sponsoring that event like it'd be really good to just kind of give people like a really solid take home yeah. today and I also thought that given the 22 is so big now mm. that maybe we should actually look at that event and why how it would be a bit different if you're doing the 22 as opposed to like yeah. the 50 100. I think the 50 100 kind of sit close-ish together because there are many athletes that will take like eight hours, which is a super old, like it is an ultra. Mm. But if we were to go through them just and break it down and you know the course down really well and what the days are like. So, yeah, yeah. would that be cool? Cool. Um, cool. So... Pretty much, I'm just going to forget that we've got an audience. I'm going to turn that off. Hang on. And hopefully that's not going to... All right. It's fun to be back here. <laughs> How many years? I, I think it must have been a couple of years since we, we were last behind the microphone. It was. It was in that little unit. Your, your unit in Melbourne. Yeah. So time has like completely flown, I feel. Mm. But it's super cool to have you back, Daz. And I feel that you've probably evolved so much as well since even we were doing that episode. Particularly I was thinking about how back then it was relatively early on that you'd really been involved in the trail running, ultra running scene. And that's probably been a big, big part that's taken off for you. Not to mention the fact that your company has changed names <laughs> yeah. and changed some of its product lines. And obviously this isn't like sitting here to do a super plug for, for code and nutrition, but obviously you can't have a discussion about sports nutrition without bringing in the code products. So I wanted today, if it's okay with you, to really focus in on the Ultra Trail Australia event, which is now six months away, um, of which Coda is now sponsor. And wondered if we could maybe begin there and of all the events that you could have picked to sponsor in Australia, I guess, why that one to begin with? Yeah, it's a, good, it's a fairly new sport, trail running. Mm -hmm. um, and because I've been involved with endurance athletes for so long, um, I recognise that, you know, there was a lot for runners to learn in regards to their nutrition and hydration. Um, and particularly that sort of event because there's such a range in temperatures and there's a lot to consider when you're, when you're competing in those sort of events. Um, so that was the main reason. And also there's a science to this. It's not just put two scoops of powder in water and that's all you need all day. That's, that's not science. It's fantastic because it sounds like, oh, okay, that's all I need to do. Mm. Um, and it's, uh, it's convenient, 
but um, sadly it's not something that's going to you're not going to realize your true potential um, mm. you're going to have you're going to have there's going to be problems with that sort of plan I um, mean you need to be better organized so it's kind of important maybe right at the beginning to bust through that myth that at some point in an ultra you're going to have stomach issues and that vomiting and other issues to do with gastric distress are really a part of the game because I don't think either you or I agree with that statement, but it seems to kind of be out there. Mm. Yeah, well, no, you shouldn't. You, 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 you want to avoid stomach problems. That's the, that's the main thing, and it's not... It, it's understanding that you have specific needs and you need to address those specific needs, but not all the same. We all have, you know, varying physiological makeups. Mm. Um, and it's understanding how we find out what they are and then address them, but address them based on what our stomach can tolerate. You know, everyone's digestive system is different. Mm. So, you know, we're, we're very unique and there's unique challenges in these sort of endurance events that you need to be aware of because if the temperature changes, you need to change your plan accordingly. Mm. So maybe that's kind of a really nice prelude into um yeah, focusing in on Ultra Trail Australia and I guess for the people that aren't running Ultra Trail Australia it is either a 22 or 50 or 100 kilometre event through the mountains in Australia in May so anything that we talk about really will have a lot of relevance to many athletes who are off to do other adventures but I kind of really want to use it as the case study because I think it is a really unique event um, in the challenges that it faces because of the dry warm sunny Australian environment on the whole and yet you're starting in the mountains in May which is leading into winter where you have like really cold starts to the day so maybe if we begin um I wouldn't mind focusing on the 22 kilometer event to begin with obviously it's grown astronomically in numbers um it tends to target people coming into the sport who are sort of just trying to literally find their feet but it also has an elite field at the front um, it's all downhill for the first eight kilometers and then it's pretty much all uphill for the, the um, run to the finish line. So 14k to the finish is all uphill. So I guess like thinking the intensities are going to change, the temperatures are going to change. Um, I, I'm wondering kind of what your recommendation would be as we like think about the 22k event. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It, it, the intensity does change, um, and the duration that you're out there is obviously shorter. So, your reliance on nutrition and hydration isn't as critical as it is for the 50 and 100. But still, being mindful that um, you're going to be out there from anywhere from just under two hours to maybe five hours. So, that's going to change in regards to. Firstly, understanding how long you're going to be out there for, mm. um, but then um, realizing that although it is 8Ks downhill, running downhill can sometimes be a lot harder than the uphill section. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of energy expenditure in that first 8K with the understanding that you've got 14K uphill after that. So yeah, there's yeah. a lot to think about. And on that, it's actually been shown in quite a few studies that you use proportionately more energy running downhill than you do actually running uphill in terms of like the forces required to do the activity. And part of that is because we're not very efficient at 
the way we keep our bodies moving going downhill like there's a, a real tendency to want to break quite solidly so you tend to find you put energy into breaking then you're slowing the body down and then need to apply an energy to keep the body rolling um, and it becomes really jarring on the body so imagine that you're getting a huge amount of um, tissue trauma happening in that sort of eight kilometer descent and does that I've often wondered this like does that actually impact how you feel in your gut system you know like when you get a lot of tissue trauma you must get a lot of waste products starting to formulate in the body as well as the lactic acid which can kick in and I'm just kind of wondering whether that has any impact yeah it, I think um, your stomach's limited when you run anyway so um, the amount of fluid and the amount of calories that you can consume is uh, is always less than if you were riding a bike as an example but running downhill um, running's a controlled fall mm. anyway so, but downhill it's even harder to control that so um, yeah absolutely it would probably it makes sense that it put even more stress on the stomach mm. running downhill as not well. to mention I guess like because I, as I was asking that question I was thinking about the limbs like the, the legs but when you really think about that question you've also got this trauma of the stomach just shaking just, up yeah. and down so like, like eight kilometers yeah yeah, yeah. So there's going to be times where it's maybe difficult to take on food and fluid in that in that part, um, and also, you know, depending how um, technical the trail is as well. You know, sometimes you forget about eating and drinking because you're you're worried about where that next foot's you know, where, where that next step's going, whether it's a a branch or a or a rock or something you can roll your ankle on that sort of thing. Yeah, that's true. But I also think saying that instance in the beginning of the 22 in that 8k it's just this big open fire trail where you can get really carried away like you can be running you know even for a, an, a regular athlete four minute k's down this hill like pounding down it and in i think even in that there's almost a bigger risk that you forget to look after yourself because you just kind of get in that flow mode and off you go yeah and then you hit this huge uphill so I guess like when you think about the 22K, um, I would say that one of the greatest challenges would be what, what on earth do you eat for breakfast in the morning? And I know that you've always recommended to keep it kind of simple, but in, your, in the realms of what you normally eat. But I'm just thinking that we're talking to a population of people that are probably incredibly healthy, who would sit down and have like bowls of muesli and fruit and yogurt and I don't know, like running down a hill with that kind of in my gut just kind of starts to, that would start to terrify me after a while yeah. when I think about it. Yeah, it's a very individual thing. It's, mm. um, but it'd be something that if I was doing the 22, I would be doing a lot of my training uh, running downhill mm -hmm. um, and then build some, some uh, uphill running into, into that training session because um, a lot of people don't train for that downhill section. Yeah. Um, and being able to control that pace as well, um, which is um, counterintuitive because when you have that opportunity to run down, you want to try and run as, as fast as you can. Mm -hmm. But the faster you go, the more load that puts on the legs, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, can, will, you know, have uh, or cause issues in that 14K up. Yeah. So, um, 
and the more shaking it's going to have on the gut and you know all of the organs like you're just going to have more trauma i completely agree because obviously i've been putting together these training plans for this event for years now we've had over three and a half thousand athletes who've used them and the 22 one is the one that's grown the most and a big part of that plan is actually saying <laughs> encouraging people to train for the downhill and setting setting sessions that involve downhill running yeah but but then in going back to that question then do you, would would you recommend that people a stick to what they would normally eat and b train like after eating something because yeah, most, most athletes yeah. don't most athletes would roll out of bed have a glass of water or a cup of tea or coffee or whatever and mm. straight out the door well that's generally in training um it's best to start on an empty stomach and for that first hour running you know on that empty stomach and then start to introduce calories from then on in training not something you want to do in a race though um you want to start taking in those calories you know as soon as as possible or soon into the into the event but, um, but so how come it would be different in what you can do in training as to what you do in racing i think yeah, I think that's probably a really important question because... Because come race day, um, there's, there's a lot of nerves, there's a lot of tension, um, and there's a lot of athletes who can't stomach yeah, breakfast in the morning. Totally. Um, some can eat huge amounts without any problem, but it, it's really... It, it's, I think the, the main point is there's no right or wrong. Mm. If you haven't had breakfast because you haven't been able to, you haven't felt like it, that's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. that, that's just you. Um, but don't force something in that you don't feel like it because sometimes you just don't feel like eating yeah. the, the morning of the race. But I think it's important to have something in a couple of hours prior to um, because by the time that you arrive at the event um, and you know, you've warmed up and getting ready to start, it's sometimes an hour and a half and to two hours since you've eaten anything anyway. Mm. So I think it's important to to you know have something in that two hours prior. Yeah. Um, and can and it's really going to be depending on dependent on how you feel. Yeah. Um, but practicing different types of foods before the run. Yeah. You know, not not five minutes before you run, but you know, thirty minutes to an hour before. Just whether it's banana, whether it's some muesli, whether it's some porridge or some toast, just try different things and just see how your stomach responds to that yeah. session. That's what I've been recommending to all the athletes that I work with is, um, I always talk about white fluffy starchy as a bit of a guide, just to help people, I guess, navigate through A, the plethora of marking material out there and B, just the complexities of food choices these days. But um, I find, I've found that I, I myself and I encourage the athletes I work with to, to practice with it on certain key events, like key training sessions. So the mish, the long missions, potentially their long runs, and then occasionally like a harder run just to get up and practice like having something. And what actually works for me are your energy bars. They always have. Um, and I found that one benefit of this is that sleep is obviously so critical before events as well. Um, if you're getting up, say the 100K athletes, start at six o'clock in the morning i think the first start wave goes or, or thereabouts so two hours before is like four in the morning that means you're actually rolling out of bed before four in the morning 
Um, and I found that I could be chewing on one of your bars while I'm warming up, um, sipping on a cup of tea and then standing on the start line and still feel like I have that sort of nice hollow feeling in the stomach where you don't have like breakfast just sitting there churning around. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Everyone is different, but I think it's okay to kind of have a strategy that you have in your normal life and then a strategy that you have in your athlete life and then be practicing the athlete life, you know, in key sessions throughout the six months leading up to the event. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> and the thing I always say is make as many mistakes as possible in mm. training and uh, have a think about why your stomach might be upset in, you know, through a, a, a longer run. Mm. Um, and it could be a myriad of things, but don't go changing a whole bunch of things. Just change one thing at a yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. You know, it could be the volume of fluid that you drank. It could have been that there's a certain ingredient in a product that for whatever reason, it's not that you have a sensitive stomach, it's just that you have a heightened response yeah. to that particular ingredient. Um, Two more thoughts actually come to mind on that. One is that um, when you're thinking about even when you've only changed one thing, you have to really take into consideration where you are in life at that point in time because one thing that I found really, really mask your nutrition well, two things actually. One is sleep, how fatigued you are going in. And the second one is stress. Like I think stress, you could eat the same thing every time you go out for a run. And if you're in a particularly stressful period, there's a high chance that your stomach isn't as settled as what it normally is. Or you don't feel like you have the same energy from what you're using in your nutrition when you get out on the run that comes from stress and sleep as well, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the stomach, it's our second brain. Um, mm. And, you know, there's all those sayings about, you know, that um, it's a gut feel and all that sort of thing. It's, you know, there's hundreds of millions of neurons. It's amazingly complex. So, you know, there's just going to be times where you're spot on if you haven't been sleeping well or you're stressed or... You know, you're broken up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or something. There's something going on that's going to impact on on how you're feeling. Mm. Um, and that's it's just like with everything. If you if you are stressed, things just don't seem to be going as well. Mm. So yeah, it uh, certainly the the stomach is the single most important organ in the body mm. when we're competing or, or in training or whatever. It's just uh, and we can compromise that. And as soon as we compromise the stomach everything slows down yeah yeah and then the other thought that came to mind when we were talking about putting nutrition in before the runs is i've been reading quite a bit about this but it's really important in order to stop the stomach and the gastric system becoming ischemic and distressed during racing which can often then lead to all the all the issues that can manifest such as vomiting and you know <laughs> going the other way um is that it's so important to try and keep your know, blood perfusion coming through the, the gastric system and so by having a little bit of nutrition in your stomach at the beginning of the event keep retain some blood flow to that even while you're working really hard so if we were looking at that 22 kilometer event where you're pounding down a hill for eight kilometers and your body's probably desperately wanting to put all of the blood out into the limbs it actually retains a little bit around the, the gut system because it has to because of the food that's sitting in there um, and that makes a lot of sense to me, you know, that, yeah, that's why you probably wouldn't roll straight out the door in a completely empty stomach. For race day? Yeah, for yeah. race day. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, that, and 
and once again, it comes back to individual. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, there's athletes I've worked with over the many, many years who who can stomach you know, quite a solid amount of, of breakfast yeah. or food and others that simply cannot. Yeah. And the difference in the result is not based on how much the breakfast they've had that morning. It's yeah. been based on what's worked for that individual. So um, I think that's the main thing. It, the, the, it, I guess, you know, science-based is there has to be some conclusion. Um, but a lot of the sports, sports nutrition out there, you change one variable and the conclusion changes. Mm. So it's there's no, look, I keep going back to that, there's no one size fits all. Yeah. Um, it, it really is a very individual thing. So it's probably more important to set your own hypothesis really and test it on yourself and just keep testing and keep testing and keep testing. 100%. Yeah. 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 And find what food, for me, porridge, it, it sits wonderfully well on my stomach, but it's... It has a very low thermic effect, mm. meaning it's metabolized very quickly. Yeah. Um, Whereas so, I'm the complete opposite. I grab one of your bars, they're an energy bar, they're probably like more refined, well, not refined sugars, sorry, more sugars in them that come from the dates in them, and that's yeah. what works for me. Mm. Like, it feels like get it out of the system as quickly as possible. It's super. The energy. It's super clean, though. The and bar, absolutely. So there's nothing in there that can. And that's the whole thing about when you're formulating sports foods yeah um, understanding about the stomach is critical um you know and it's why um you know choosing the right ingredients that are less likely to uh, compromise the stomach yeah that and that's the key and that should be the key to everyone who every company that manufactures sports nutrition the stomach should be the number one thing and that's why when we formulate a product it's heavily researched at elevated heart rate, mm. where our senses are heightened. Um, and if there is a concern with one of the athletes, you know, we'll work out, you know, why, what, what do we need to do to make yeah. sure this is as gentle on the stomach as possible. Yeah. Mm. But those, the new bars, I have to admit, they're just, they're a total game changer for me. Like a lot of athletes have always asked me over the years, you know, I, I don't like gels, what can I have by way of solids? And there really hasn't been that, I think that really awesome product on the market that is so clean and so easy to eat and has like such a nice palette and great texture. And the bars are just a winner now. The way way you've brought, they're plant-based, they're gluten-free, they're all natural ingredients, like, and not many ingredients, it seems like you've tried to keep them quite tailored almost yeah yeah and that, and that was the key it was um yeah the, the least amount of ingredients the less likely it's going to upset the stomach yeah um and i worked for two years on that particular formulation Trish trying to get the, the texture is super important yeah um, and what is it about dates i mean they're, they're used now in a lot of products as a sweetening agent and i yeah what, what is it that you love about them oh uh, well there's a number of things firstly you've got all these um, food requirements now with different people, gluten-free, vegan, dairy-free, all these things. So you've got to try and tick those boxes and try and cover as many people as possible. But the good thing about um, trying to 
provide a product that that um, a product that um, addresses all those different needs is that it's likely to be gentle on the stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, so dates, you know, they're they're plant based, they're gluten free, um, dairy free. So I think that's probably why. But the good thing too is it, it's 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 a naturally occurring sugar. Mm. There's no refined crystalline form sugars. So you still get that sweetness, you still get that nice texture, but importantly, you get that really nice texture. Um, and being a, and this is the thing, the difference between sugars naturally occurring mm. and sugars that are refined crystalline form that are heavily processed is the, the difference is your body recognizes that sugar in, in the form of a date because it's naturally occurring. The sugars used, um, the added sugars, the processed crystalline form sugars, are so far removed from their natural form mm. that for most, the stomach just doesn't recognize it. And some people can comfortably consume it, but a lot can't. Yeah. Um, so making sure there's no refined crystalline form sugars is the first thing. And mm. dates, it's just um, it's just a good good ingredient and it just works really well. Yeah, and I'd even, um, even before you started making the bars, sometimes take out a few dates on my long, long, long missions where you just feel like you need something different. And actually reading about that, um, maybe I'll ask you this question. Is it possible, because obviously when then we talk about the gels, they're a glucose formula. Uh, is it possible to kind of almost overload the glucose channels in the gut system that allow you to absorb the glucose and get it into the bloodstream and into the cells? Um, so to a point where maybe there's a risk of upsetting the stomach by having too much and then by having something with dates in it, for example, it allows other channels to also be working and absorbing, you know, the energy. I just, something again I've been reading about and I just am wondering where you're at with that thinking. Yeah, um, no, I, I, for me, gels are by far the best fuel option. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is that the maltodextrin that you see written on the, mm. on the packet, the ingredient, there's about 150 different grades of maltodextrin. Now, you'll get um, clinical st- or, or uh, published articles out there about glucose and fructose, you know, two-part glucose, one-part fructose, and all this sort of thing. And it sounds great, but the, the methods they use to test it aren't accurate. So this thing about different sugars and all that sort of stuff, it, what it comes down to, it comes down to calories. We're expending calories, and a calorie is a unit of energy. Mm-hmm. What we want to do is we want to replace an amount of calories that is going to help us to maintain the output or the or the um, pace we want to run. So, firstly, it's understanding how fast we want to run. So, for the 22k athletes, you know, if they want to run two hours, they're going to have to average you know, just a bit over 10k's an hour. Now, what they want to know from that is, right, at 10k's an hour. What's my energy expenditure? How many units of energy am I expending at 10 kilometers an hour? So are they aiming to 
I mean, I, I think I know the answer to this, but I know what other people are going to be thinking is like, are they going to be aiming to put back all of that? Like, no. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the bit so, that I think confuses yeah, people. That, exactly. So, so having a look at, so if you were aiming to run 10 kilometers an hour, you'd have your watch and you'd know that your average heart rate is 140 as an example. So 140 beats per minute um, to, to hold that intensity at 10 kilometers an hour for 22 kilometers. Now there's gonna be times where you're running at 14 kilometers an hour and other times you might be running at six k's an hour. Mm. So, but it needs to average out to that 10 k. So there's gonna be on your Sunto or Garmin or whatever watch you use, that's gonna tell you how many calories you're expending each hour. Mm-hmm. As an example, it might be, you know, for the 22, you're gonna be running at a higher intensity. So it might be 600 calories an hour. Mm. So you know for that, um, for that intensity, you're expending 600 calories, but you will always burn or expend more calories than our stomach can tolerate. So what we wanna do, we wanna aim for an amount of calories that we can comfortably tolerate, mm-hmm. which, not, which isn't gonna compromise the stomach. So in that instance, you would probably aim for about 230 to 250 calories an hour. And so a gel is how many? 117. Right, so you're saying like two to three gels an hour it, it'd be about, over yeah, that 22 one, one every, About one every 30 minutes. Yeah. Now, excuse me, you, you might be able to run that two hours without needing a lot of calories at all. It's very dependent on your own physiological makeup. Yeah. You might be extraordinarily efficient at burning the glycogen that you have stored. And so athletes too that say, don't get up in the morning and don't eat breakfast and don't use gels when they're doing their really hard sessions, they probably have, have trained their bodies to kind of be able to perform in a more depleted state. As yeah, well. yeah it, it, it could be just that um, they're very efficient, like the amount of glycogen that they're burning isn't as much as, as someone who's running the same pace, who weighs the same as them, but that athlete, for whatever reason, needs to take on more calories. Yeah. It's, just, it's just their physiological makeup. Yeah. So this is why it, it's, you don't always take advice from another runner because that runner might just have an extraordinary yeah. physiological makeup that requires they don't need as many calories to run the same intensity. And you're finding this out for yourself by just practicing it in training and going, oh, that didn't feel good, that felt a bit too much. Yeah, You know, exactly. and then, oh, no, that didn't feel enough and I just was losing power and you just... Yeah, because, I mean, I don't... I mean, I'm lucky that I've been on this journey for a fair while and I know now intrinsically kind of gee, I'm working hard up this hill. As soon as I get to where it flattens out and I can breathe a bit more, I'm going to have a gel and I'm going to work a bit harder at keeping my nutrition up. And then as it starts to flatten out and I roll downhill or the trail gets more technical and it slows me down, like I tend to just kind of intrinsically know I don't need as much. But I think what you're saying is this is how you kind of, this is a science to get to that point where you begin to intrinsically be able to read the body. Yeah, exactly. And, and but we don't have a fuel gauge. No. So that, yeah. that watch on your wrist is your fuel gauge. It's showing you how many calories you're expending each hour. Now for the 22, clearly you don't need to be as aggressive with your nutrition as you're gonna to have to be with a 50 and 100 mm-hmm. because you're out there for a lot longer. 
with the with the 22 it's making sure that you get some calories in in that first part of the event that that 14k isn't yeah. as difficult because it, there's going to be a point where water sodium and calories will impact on how you perform because mm. that's what we're expending most of and those those three losses water sodium and calories will have the biggest impact on how that last five or six K of that 20 K is going to be. Yeah. But even more importantly for the 50 and hundred. Absolutely. And when I think about then the 22, my strategy personally, and again, you shouldn't take advice from other athletes, but anyway, bugger it, I'll put it out there. It would be, a, I would eat, I'd be eating a bar in that hour before. Um, I would have a gel five or 10 minutes before right on the start line, just so that I'm like super topped up after running around, finding a bathroom, doing a jog, warm-up, that kind of thing. I would then be running down that hill till I had probably five or ten minutes till the bottom and I would have a gel about five or ten minutes before the bottom. That Then no, then it's kind of my seat. Not only is it my like putting back some energy so I've got a bit in the tank for the up, but it would also be like a cue to switch gear. Like the uphill's coming, I'm having this gel, I'm going to feel like I'm full and on, on, the, on my A game really. And then after that, I would be just, yeah, working per time on putting the gels back in because sometimes you kind of put your head down and get in that zone where you're just chugging up the hill and you actually can forget about time and suddenly, you know, an hour's gone past and you, you've forgotten to eat anything. And that's how I learned right at the beginning was I worked out roughly, you know, my first big ultra was the cradle Cradle Mountain Ultra, so 82k. It's not super high intensity, but it is quite runnable. So there's never a point where you're not moving quite strongly through. And um, I just worked out through training and training with other people roughly, like how frequently I needed to set an alarm. And I think it was every 45 minutes I set my alarm to eat something. And when it went off, I had to eat something and I had to drink something. And it just didn't matter if I only had like two jelly beans or I had like a whole bar or a gel or half a bottle of fluid or one sip of fluid, but it was just that cue to kind of check in with your body and be like, how's it feeling? How's the energy going? How hydrated am I feeling? And I just had the most amazing run. Like I was not probably trained enough. I was only 18. I didn't have a lot of experience, but like I just remember it being like a cracker day out. And that was kind of set the scene and then I realized when I moved into the marathon that I had to set my alarm every half an hour not every 45 minutes and that was because the intensity was higher um, or on a really hot day I had to be more on top of the hydration and nutrition because I was just burning more energy because the, the conditions were demanding that of the body so that was how I learned and then I just slowly adjusted that alarm and then eventually I didn't need the alarm and kind of went from there just want to take a little pause in this discussion with Daryl Griffiths just to remind you about all of the training resources that are available on my website. So from my trail running guidebook right through to my six month training planners, there are event specific ones, particularly for Old Trail Australia's 22, 50 and 100 kilometer, but also a training planner for beginners who are starting out in the sport of trail running, marathon runners, 100 kilometer athletes, 100 miler athletes, there and multi-day athletes, there's a plethora of resources available for you. So jump across to my website, go to the services and training planners page of my website and you'll find all of them there. 
uh, they can be purchased on oh, by by going through that process you can purchase them through find your feet and enter the word podcast at checkout to actually get a discount of 20 percent on all of these resources so yeah jump across to hannyalston.com.au and you will find all of these resources there for you to browse through just I love to learn and and I and it comes back to this and you know I can write the best training planners in the world and athletes can follow them to a T and they can be even more masterful than that and really engage with what they need and adjust the programs and stuff but if you don't get your nutrition right on race day it's game over you know I think if if there's one area of performance that you can make the biggest single difference it would be nutrition more so than training i believe yeah absolutely and that and that is so critical the longer mm-hmm. the, event, the longer the duration mm-hmm. um and understanding firstly the most important things and that's water and sodium so that that covers your hydration they're the two most critical components and what you lose most of but that changes, like you, you mentioned, as the temperature changes, you have to be more diligent with your hydration, in, obviously in hotter conditions because you're losing more. Mm-hmm. But being very mindful that in the cold conditions, when you're not sweating that much, hydration isn't that critical. And you don't want to be drinking too much, which is going to compromise the stomach. Yeah. So that's, that's the key to this event. So can we talk then, <coughs> skipping forward to the... So so I think we probably both agree that the 22, they've got a big challenge on the downhill, get some energy in before the uphill and then work with your energy all the way up the uphill to the finish, but knowing that you're not running for 8 hours, 10 hours, 20 hours, so if you get to the end and your energy tank's empty, that's yeah. okay. Yeah, you exactly. Know, it's, it's you just, exactly, you bury but, yourself to the line. But um, I don't think... In a 50 or 100k, I almost feel like you don't ever want to think that you're going to finish completely on empty. I think in your heart you need to know that there's still some energy in the tank even when you cross the finish line because that's your your backup reserve in case your pace slows over the last four or five hours, you know, and you are out there longer than you think. Whereas in thinking of 22, you kind of know that, and even in a marathon, it's just like put it all out on the line. I just personally don't think that's ever a race strategy for a 50 or 100 not for 50 or 100 not when unless you're, you're a super elite. elite and you really know yourself yeah unless you're you know, it's your job yeah it's your full-time occupation yeah. and you know and you're running you know 150 200 k's a yeah. week um so can we like then talk about let's let we'll talk about it as the longer events so 50 and 100 k they both start well, particularly the 100 starts really early in the morning in the mountains. So it could be exceedingly cold, less than 10 degrees easily, yeah, even re- down at zero. Yeah, yeah it, it can be. Normally it's around that three to four degrees in the morning when you start. That's historically been around that temperature. And it doesn't really get warm until the... Really... and. I mean, I'm thinking about it, generalising it, but it really doesn't get warm until you get out off the mountains down into the valleys. In the um, Megalong. In the Megalong Valley, exactly. Um, So you're probably going to be 
three to four hours in before you start to really notice the temperature changing on you. So what is the significance of that? And let's, I mean, let's start with hydration. I think it's classic. So, yeah. Well, that, yeah, and that's, you know, having followed this race for quite a number of years, um, that, that I think that's the biggest um, problem that happens with a lot of the runners in this race is that they go into the race with a preset amount of fluid that they say, okay, I'm going to drink this amount of fluid every hour. Mm-hmm. And they don't consider that the temperatures change quite a lot. I think there's another challenge though, Daz, in there as well in that a lot of people stress over weather. I mean, I'm do- I've am got a tour going out at the end of the week. We're running 65K in a day down the overland track and I'm already looking at the weather and stressing about what the weather's going to be like. And I think a lot of people do that and they look at this event and they go, oh my gosh, it's going to get to 27 degrees during the day. I've got to make sure I'm really like on my floors early in the day is kind of almost like preloading for when it gets really hot. I think that's a mentality that also exists. You're spot on. They're looking at the maximum temperature. Absolutely. And while it might get, and, and during the UTA, the Megalon can get to mid-20s to high-20s. Easy, Yeah. So, With and it's quite exposed yeah, as well. there's no shade. Yeah. Exactly. So a lot of plan their hydration based on the maximum temperature of the day. Now, if you're starting in four or five degrees, um, you don't need to drink much. You're not sweating that much. So this is where drinking your calories is, is a big problem for these endurance events mm. because it locks you into a set amount of fluid. And to access those calories, you're drinking way beyond what you need. And it's not until three or four hours down the track that you start to get these stomach problems. And then you might take a gel or you might take something and all of a sudden it just all comes back up. Mm-hmm. And then in your head you go, oh, that gel, it's just made me sick. Exactly. Well, yeah. it's not the gel you've just taken. It's the copious amounts of fluid that you've drunk trying to chase your, calori- chase your calories from your, from your drink, um, which has compromised the stomach. Yeah. And it happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Or people haven't quite got the electrolyte formulation right in their fluid. So uh, a classic example of this is um, Graham, my husband, and I, I've been through this process with you so many times where we'd worked out what my sodium concentration was and what was the perfect amount of electrolyte for me in my drinks. And so Graham had never gone through this process. And we would always go out missioning together and doing long days out in the mountains and he'd just take the same formula as me. And every single time on every long mission we've done, he's ended up vomiting <laughs> in, a, in a really messy situation and I'm feeling absolutely fine and it was just because that concentration of the electrolyte was way 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 too strong for his stomach so he was retaining all this fluid in his belly he was actually taking fluid the wrong way down the concentration gradient from his blood into his belly and his belly would get like this big little swollen thing and then it would all just start coming out and it's just that perfect highlighted example that everyone is completely different and it's so important to kind of get to know what that perfect formulation is for you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And that's and the, the simplest thing you can do is that pre and post weighing. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to go out for a run and it has to be a, because um, the two things that dictate how much you sweat 
is the intensity mm -hmm. or the workload and the environmental conditions. Yeah. So it needs to be a pace similar to what you're going to be running the event in. So um, what, what it's going to tell you is at four degrees, you might be losing 300 mils of sweat mm. an hour. And if that's the case, once again, you, you're, you're uh, dictated by your stomach and what it can tolerate. And you will always lose more sweat than your stomach can process. Mm -hmm. And that's simply a matter of the surface area of your skin compared to the size of your stomach. Yeah, of course, that makes complete sense. And that's that's always the case. And so, by stomach, we're also talking about large intestine, which is where most of your fluids get absorbed. Well, it's actually, yeah, the, the duodenum, which is the first part of the small intestine. Okay. Um, which is which is tiny. It's not, mm. it's not It's not a huge, huge organ. So, but even when you compare the size of your stomach to the surface area of your skin, um, the stomach's never going to keep up. So, does that change then on body size? No. So, no. Okay. No. Regardless, it's it's not gender specific. It's not um, weight or height or anything like that. It's just it 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 really comes down to what I think is um, the hypothalamus, the brain, the, mm -hmm. the area that that maintains that safe core temperature mm -hmm. and that trigger. There's some athletes that can just operate at a higher core temperature. Mm -hmm. So those athletes tend to not have to sweat as much to keep a safe core temperature or their safe core temperature as opposed to someone else. So this is, this is the uniqueness in our physiological makeups is that some of us just sweat a lot more regardless of whether we're running at the same intensity in the same environment conditions and some just don't sweat as much. Mm. So in that case, some athletes just simply don't need to drink as much as others. So it's finding out those um, unique, that, that uniqueness about yourself, mm. then you can make a plan. And with this six months leading up to, um, UTA. Up to UTA, and I know coming into summer, it's gonna be hard to find out what your sweat rate is in colder conditions, but you'll get that opportunity come sort of March, April. March, April. Yeah. But while it's hot, find out what your sweat rate is in these hotter conditions. Because if there's a, a, a warm front that comes through and you're in the mega long valley for a couple of hours. At least. Yeah. Probably four hours for some athletes. Yeah, for some. You want to know that, you know, what what's my sweat rate at, you know, 28, 29 degrees, even yeah. 30. So that at, at the intensity you're going to be running, because then you know that, okay, Right, geez, my, my sweat rate jumps right up to 1.8 litres an hour in those yeah. temperatures, where at four degrees, it's only four or 500 mils an hour. Yeah, so if I then put a practical spin back on it, my strategy, if I was running the, and when I've run the 100 um, and the 50, has been I pretty much haven't drunk anything for two hours at least and even then in that third and fourth hour I sip a little bit maybe because I've had a gel and I've just washed the mouth out because I've already had a cup of tea or two in the morning before I started the gels have a bit of like a, a volume in them in just in themselves and there's also something okay about in training I tend to not take a lot out with me so I normally know that feeling of just being a little bit drier you know 
And then when I do start to drink, it feels like it really absorbs quite, quite efficiently out of my gut. And so then when I get down into those warmer areas, then you just begin to just drip feed yourself a little bit more. I try not to guzzle. I try not to have big boluses of water, um, well, not water, fluid, electrolyte, but just kind of drip it in. But it, I kind of think about how you have a garden and, you know, the day gets a bit hotter and you think, gee, I might go out and put the, the dripper on the, on the plants now because it's getting hotter and drier. <laughs> like it's the same principle. It's like consider yourself a plant that you just got to keep watering it, but not drowning not, not the whole thing. Not you yeah. Yeah, yeah so. exactly. So, and then as the day cools off again at the other end, it's kind of the same. Like, and that's probably almost one of the most risky periods as well is like when the sun starts to go down, the temperatures begins to drop again. You might feel parched, but you've got to be so careful that you just don't dump a whole volume of fluid in your gut and mm-hmm. when it's already super stressed down. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's the, the challenge with this event is that particularly for the 100 is that you'll go from cold to warm to cold again. Mm-hmm. Um, so having that understanding that your that your hydration or your fluid requirements are going to change mm-hmm. they will it's just it's just what's going to happen because you're going to be sweating different amounts yeah and you only drink an amount based on how much you're sweating at the time mm-hmm. now for instance if it is only that three or four hundred mils in the morning then you, you're likely you're only going to drink maybe 150 to 200 mils so you're going to be taking small sips you know, but then as the day increases in temperature, your sweat rate starts to increase. And what you want to do in that part is it's about minimizing percentage of loss. And this is the whole thing. We want to, we want to get to that finish line in the best condition possibly. We don't, we don't want to be feeling like crap days afterwards. We, mm. want to, we want to get to the line and feel like it's going to be challenging. There's absolutely no question about that. Mm. But, you know, just being bent over on the side of the trail, vomiting and diarrhea and just feeling, and, and even to the point where you pull out, there's a lot of athletes that pull out from this race. I would say that most of the athletes who pull out of this event would be from stomach distress or and or probably both energy depletion yeah and a lot that finish yeah have all sorts of stomach problems as well but they they sort of get their way through it and but the time they've done they get to the finish and they're they're not they're not satisfied with the time they've done because they've had so many stomach issues but that's the the interesting thing is that you can have stomach issues and then get rid of all the excess volume sitting in your gut and actually then start to come right again and feel normal and keep be able to keep going and finish and it just is absolute evidence of what you're saying is that so much of this is just about too much stuff in the stomach that can't absorb um so it's got to come out sets yeah. up the stretch reflex in the gut mm. exactly and that's the thing and this is why we separate hydration and calories and yeah. why we've done it for so many years and why as a husband and wife business we've been around for 25 years next year mm. is because once athletes get an understanding of this concept of not drinking your calories because we don't drink our calories Mm-mm. we eat food and we drink water that's at rest is what mm-hmm. we do. As we start to sweat, 
we're losing water and sodium, sodium more than any other electrolyte. So we need to replace that sodium component as well. Mm-hmm. And some athletes need to replace a lot more than others mm-hmm. because they're losing a lot more. Mm-hmm. So, um, so back to the calories, the amount of calories that you consume stays the same, whether it's four degrees or 34 degrees. So long as your intensity stays the same. Exactly. So you've already, if you're doing the 100 or the 50 or the 22, you've got an idea in your head of what time you want to do. So what you need to know is that, um, so for um, you know, 100 Ks, you want to run 15 hours, you've got to average 6.7 Ks an hour. So you know, oh, sorry, seven, maybe it might be 7.6 Ks an hour. There it is. Yeah. So you know that um, you're running at that intensity and your calorie expenditure is 400 calories an hour, is the example. Mm-hmm. So you know that 15 hours, you're expending 400 calories an hour, so 15 to 6,000 calories that you're expending in that time. But do you also think, though, that we start these longer events often a little conservative in the first, say, six hours for that athlete. You're a bit more conservative and then you start to hit the bigger hills again and your body begins to fatigue and you tend to have to lean in more and and exert a bit more kind of as the day goes on. Um, Do you think that we need to kind of take that into consideration when we're thinking about our calories? I think that you should have an understanding of that average heart rate zone. Okay. That you need to... Um, which is commensurate with the, with the intensity that you're running at. Mm. So whether, whether you're running 12 k's an hour down a hill or 5 or 6 k's up, up the hill, that heart rate zone should be around the same. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing. It, it, and what you don't want to be doing is surging and, you know, spiking the, the heart rate or then running at, you know, a, a much lower heart rate where you, you're not maintaining that speed that you need to maintain to get to that finish time. So um, I think the level in intensity needs to just remain the same regardless of the gradient, but being mindful that um, there's gonna be a certain amount of calories or units of energy that you're expending each hour, um, but being mindful that you're not gonna be able to consume that much, you're never able to. So don't try and aim to consume 400 calories an hour if you're expending 400 calories because you're going to blow the stomach apart. Yeah, and one way that I taught myself, again, like, I mean, I've used heart rate over the years, but I actually evolved to using just a rating in my head of, like, 1 out of 10 or 1 to 10. So when I've done my 5 and 10K tempo, like, hard, hard time trial efforts, I've rated that as a 10 out of 10 in terms of my intensity. And a 1 to me is actually I'm still lying in bed getting, trying to get out of bed in the morning. So that's my scale that I use. And then I just check in with myself and be like, oh, as I got this hill, like what what effort do I think I'm working at? Oh, this is like a seven out of 10. Or if I'm like running along um, uh, narrow neck, which for ages on the gravel road and there's quite a bit of flatter and slow, slightly rolling down, then you roll down, 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 down into mega long. And I might only be like three out of 10. And that having that kind of understanding and simplifying it to that degree for me has been really helpful because then if I'm at seven, eight out of 10, I know that I'm burning energy. I'm like, 
get a bit more in, but just monitor how your how your tummy feels. And then if I'm like three, four out of ten, I can probably back off and give my belly a little bit of a break, you know, and just just drip feed it in or have one one gel like every hour rather than every half hour, things like that. And I don't know because I know that a lot of people don't run by heart rate and running 100k watching your heart rate can get quite stressful for people so I'm not saying that that's how you first of all learn but I think maybe trying to get to that kind of ability to simplify it because the more you're thinking about in 100 the more stressful it gets and confusing it gets because your head starts to get fuzzy <laughs> yeah but if you're thinking about this sort of stuff six months out yeah um you know, there's going to be a, you're going to get to the point where you're not going to be needing to look at your at your watch. Yeah. But it's important to look at it now. Yeah. To get an idea, because if you've set yourself a certain time, particularly if it's your first time, um, you might be readjusting that time based on the numbers that you're seeing. Because what you need to do is you need to multiply the numbers that you're seeing on your watch by the amount of time that you're going to be out on the course. Mm. Um, you know, so you know if you you're burning 400 calories an hour and you're out there for 20 hours, you know that's 8,000 calories. Yeah. So it's then going right. How many calories can my stomach comfortably tolerate per hour? Because I need to have that understanding before I start. You know, in May, at, at, you know, and when I'm putting my foot on the on the line to start. So um, there's always going to be that gap between expenditure and your stomach's tolerance. So it's learning those things and it, that's where it is, that's the science, mm. is understanding that um, there's an expenditure in regards to calories, you need to know what that is. But then you need to know what your unique digestive system can tolerate each hour. So you can bridge the gap as best you can between that expenditure and yeah. your stomach and, and what your stomach can process. And that's why, going back to what you were saying, we separate hydration and uh, energy. Because if you need energy, you put energy in the tank. If you need fluid, you put fluid in the tank and you don't mix them together. Yeah. We don't take them at once. Well, yeah. It, or you yeah. don't use a one-stop formula that tries to do everything. Well, and that's the thing. So, so these powdered drinks, that say this is all your energy and all your hydration that you need. The message they're sending is that everyone in that race needs the same volume of fluid, so mm -hmm. we all lose the exact same amount of sweat. We all need the same amount of sodium, so we all lose the exact same amount of sodium. And we all need the same amount of fuel, so we're all running at the same pace. Yeah. So, Which is ridiculous because if, so like, I know I used to think I was a heavy sweater and actually I'm not. No. I probably only lose 500 mils an hour on an average Tassie day. I've run with people who lose two litres an hour. So if, if we do a 10-hour run, I'm going to lose five litres and they're going to lose 20. It's, that's just, it's crazy. Like, that's... 15 well, litre yeah. difference. They're not going to get to the end of that 10 hour Yeah, run. and think about a 10 litre bucket that you have in your you know, laundry for mopping floors. You fill mm. that up and that's mm. still not in equivalent to the difference of sweat we're losing. And, yeah. and I think it's like breaking it down into these simple metaphors that actually goes, holy moly. Mm. Yeah, that's big. So that's why it's, it's, it is important to have an understanding of what you're losing yeah. based on the temperature that you're experiencing at the time. So 
if this UTA race was January or February, there'd be a lot less people that have finished because it would be a huge requirement from a hydration perspective right from the start. Yeah. Now, the good thing about this event, well, hopefully, again, that it's going to be cold in the morning, and it should be in May, that you've got an opportunity there that you're not losing a huge amount of sweat so you can manage your hydration quite easily. Over the first sort of four Over to five the, hours or correct. so. Correct. Yeah. But then be very mindful that as it starts to heat up along the Megalong Trail, that you start to increase the volume of fluid that you drink, but have a good understanding from uh, the training sessions that you're doing, what, what, how, much you like, how much you're likely to sweat. And that's just going doing a pre, um, pre-weight, nude. Weigh yourself nude. Yeah, before you go for yeah. a run. And then with the drinks that you're gonna be taking with you. Yeah. And then wipe yourself down as much as you can when you finish your run, and then a post-weight nude. And the difference between your pre-weight and your post-weight is an approximation of how much sweat that you've lost in that run. Yeah, so like one kilogram, one liter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And so, then and then repeating that and doing that on a lunch hour run in the middle of the day for an hour. And would you be recommending people move at the intensity that they imagine running for the 100 or the 50. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's no point going out and running 5Ks an hour Yeah. if, if you if you want to average 8Ks an hour for the race. Yeah. And there's no point going out and running 12Ks an hour Yeah. if you want to run 8Ks. Or just day. even like have in your head, what, what out of 10 am I running at today? I want to run the whole 100K at 5 out of 10. Mm. So find that zone and just run in that zone. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I completely agree. And I think it's so, so important because it really, really can highlight some big differences in numbers. And and do it with friends and really get to know how different you all are. Mm. You know, my best mate, he just doesn't sweat. Like we go for a run in the morning, middle of summer, and he just literally jumps in the car, goes to work, puts his suit on and won't even need to shower for the day because he's got low sodium and a low sweat rate. So for him, he's just like, I feel like we just got out of the shower. Mm. Whereas for me, if I'm to do it, I'm like sticky as anything from so being such a salty sweater. Mm. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to hang a gone running sign on the door, just shut down the laptop, wave goodbye to your friends and family and sort of jet set away to some sneaky destination all for your love of trail running? Well, that was what sparked my interest to start trail running tours to the all corners of the world, but also to really use the tours to showcase my beautiful home state of Tasmania. So um, in 2020, most of our tours are already sold out, but it's not too late to reach out and join a waitlist or to come and join the very last lucky tour still to have spots available in the French Pyrenees. In fact, I can't believe we've got a couple of spots left because that one is so, so incredibly beautiful. And it was on that tour that I actually sparked the idea of running the entire length of the Pyrenees. Now the tours aren't just a holiday, although they're very much a holiday, but what we also love to bring to you is lots of education and resources to help you to play wilder. So it's very much an education for trail runners, but also in areas of life. So if you want to have a look at them, jump across to findyourfeetours.com.au, reach out to us, tell us what you'd like to do, and we will see if we can include you on one of these wild adventures. 
there's no one else like you on the planet. Yeah. You, you have a unique physiological makeup. And that's where it becomes really, really important that you have that understanding for these sort of events, particularly, you know, if you're going to be out there for you know, 10 hours or longer for that 100K, um, it, it's so important to understand. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've worked with quite a few people who've been like, oh, I just, you know, but I'm not an athlete. Like, I'm just an everyday person. That just still sounds <laughs> so complicated. But then I say to them, like, over six months, say you do even just five hours of training a day, you're investing so, so much time, not to mention then the time to get there, the amount of dollars you spend on this by the time you get your mandatory gear and your entry and your accommodation and your transport. And like, just, I know it's a little bit nerdy kind of getting into the numbers, but it's such a small investment in a huge, huge um, positive experience that you can get out of this. And yeah. um, if you have a great day out there in May, the chances are you're going to come away going ripper you know what next and that's i think what we're actually i think it's probably where you and i both come from is we just want people just to have a great day out um whether or not they're front of the packer back of the packer middle of the packer running backwards i don't care it's just like have a great day and want to keep doing this till you're grain old <laughs> yeah and that, and you're spot on it's regardless of where you finish yeah it's it's making sure you cross that line at the, at the end and so then that myth sits there, like, for instance, I um, have worked with my mum a lot over the years who's now in her 60s and she sort of initially was saying to me, oh, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not you, you know, I'm not an elite athlete like you. I'm like, but why can't you use the products and the formulas that the elite athletes are using? Like your goal is no less important than mine just because we run at different paces. I think anyone who sets a goal as hefty as UTA 2250 and leans in and prepares for it, in my mind's eye, is an athlete. You, you have to, you 100% have to be thinking like an athlete if you're lining up for that 50 or 100. Even the 22, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a huge challenge. Mm, it's huge. So, yeah. you know, and this is the thing with trial running, and the thing that concerns me is that. I'll be talking to athletes that are in the race and they say, oh, I'm only doing 50K. I know. And that, I'm just like, you know, you, you need to stop right now because you need to give that 50K respect. And I didn't. Mm. I didn't. If, so, I don't know, the year that um, I ran it, we were both working the expo and people would say to me, like, oh, you're running. I'm like, oh, yeah, only the 50. And by having that mentality, mm. I didn't give myself even an ounce of chance to shine even though i'd done the training even though i was excited to be there i was like oh but it's only 50. and so i didn't eat enough i didn't drink enough i didn't take enough product out with me i ran out of electrolyte i cramped even in my jaw i was cramping and you stood the... up for two days at the expo beforehand yeah too. but it, you but that's the eating example well, you drinking well yeah so you took it you, you, you didn't give it the respect that it but, needed. And that's the risk with people like my mum. She's running around being my mum, not looking after herself and then expects herself to still perform. You get other mums who've got kids and they're running around chasing the kids around and looking after their friends who are running the 100 and and yet they don't look after themselves for their 22K. Um, it's just you see it everywhere. And uh, I also see it um, as people age. You know, they maybe I once was an athlete, but I'm not an athlete now. 
but hang on, dude, back then you used to run 20K events and now you're doing 100. Like, mm. your goals are as meaty, if not more meaty, than they were when you were a youngster. Mm. So I think it's about making sure we retain that archetype of the athlete, like, yeah. in our heads. But Definitely. Okay. I think the one thing that we all have in common, whether you're winning the race or just there to finish, the pain. Mm-hmm. is exactly the same I actually had a question on that um, is about holding mental focus throughout that is one of I think the classic differences between who wins and who comes second and who comes third because they're probably at that at that level they're probably all you know have really nutted through their nutrition they've all trained hard for it they're all efficient runners but it's like what happens upstairs that kind of makes the biggest difference and like knowing that you've worked with world-class athletes across that many sports even right through to Ironman and some incredibly taxing environments I know you're racing car drivers where mental focus and clarity is just absolutely life dependent um what would be your advice to people about holding mental focus throughout a day? Well, I think um, a lot of athletes think that no one's hurting as much as they are. <laughs> um, but there are, there are athletes that can hurt themselves beyond what others can. And that a lot of, time, a lot of the time is the difference between them winning and, and someone else being behind them. But it, it, for the 50 and or even the 22, for any of those events at, at UTA, it, it's challenging. And there's going to be times where, you know, it, it's going to be really painful. And there's going to be times where you want to stop. But it's just rationalizing those thoughts going, well, you know what? It'd be abnormal for me to be feeling fantastic the whole time. <laughs> and it's the reason that I'm doing this is that it's a challenge that not everyone's doing. So, you know, you just think about how well you've prepared, um, the things that you've been doing up until that point. Um, but yeah, it, it, it would be just to tell yourself that it's, it would be actually abnormal to be feeling great, but you know what? I know cause this is the things that you need to go through mentally. And this is the challenge that I've, that I've set. And I know that, you know, in a K or two K down the road, I'm going to start feeling better again because I've, I've experienced this in training before and I know that I've come good. Mm. So that's why it's always, it's good to do those longer runs in your training, but then tack on an extra couple of Ks that you didn't expect you were going to, um, just to get that feeling of of going beyond that point where actually no, I, I, I know I, I I know that I'm going to feel better because I've felt better before mm. when I've when I've been in this position. Or doing things like you're running along on a long mission and you think, you're thinking in your head like, oh, when I get to that hill, I'm just going to walk the hill and give myself a rest. But when you get there, you don't let yourself yes. and you make yourself run it. I often, I mean, it sounds like a big ego, but like we say, when you get to that, you know, top 1% of the field, you kind of like you do anything you can to kind of get to the finish line first. Um, I'd often say to myself, like, if I'm hurting this much, imagine how everyone else is hurting because I'd known that I'd like done everything that I had in my power to make sure that when I stood on that start line, I was ready to perform. And a lot of the time that was going over and beyond in training. Um, so I used to have kind of have that going through my head and Alice, who I work with as my um, mentor and coach and who I've been studying with, she would say to me, when people kind of get bogged down in the moment, 
it means that they're not really thinking about the feedback at the end. They're not going forward enough in time to think in four hours time when this is all over, like, how's that going to look? How's that going to feel? How am I going to feel about myself? Like what, what belief is that now going to give me, you know, and we often don't go forward enough in time here. We just get trapped in the moment. So I think it's like practicing that in training, like you say, and I was doing it yesterday, like my legs were just really tired. And um, I just kept saying to myself, like, but Anne, just think how awesome that shower is going to feel at the end. And when you sit down and you eat breakfast and the sun's going to be coming in. And like, I just started to paint that picture and, and that was what kept me going. And then when I got home, it was just so damn good. <laughs> like, yeah. You've, you've built it up. Yeah. 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 Um, so if we go back just to then simplify what we've been saying about the 50 and the 100 athletes, it would be, um, you know, something simple that you've practiced for breakfast in the morning, trying to just be aware of what temperature it is in that morning. Like if it's really cold, just be conservative with your fluids particularly. Keep the nutrition though going in based on the intensity you're working at. And that nutrition will stay pretty constant throughout the day, you know, relatively speaking but your hydration needs are gonna change as the, day, the day's temperature evolves, whether it's cold or warm, particularly watch out for it getting warm and sunny in the middle of the day. Exactly, um, yeah. Yeah, but then that leads, leaves one more question that I think we haven't addressed and that is like, how do you know what concentration your electrolyte needs to be because this is probably the biggest one and it's what you hear when you're standing there in the briefing rooms you know the night before the event and Hoosie gets up to speak and they're like don't over drink and don't drink too much water and you've all got to use electrolyte but we know even from the example I gave between Graham my husband and I like everyone is different in the concentration of electrolyte so how does the everyday athlete who's listening to this who's the middle of the packer or back of the packer or front of the packer and they're lining up to the event, how do they know what concentration the electrolyte should be? Right. So there is a certain amount of sodium. Well, sodium, when, when we talk electrolytes, I, I, I talk sodium. Yeah, um, clear that one up. <laughs> potassium, magnesium, calcium, they're all intracellular. So mm. the amount that you lose isn't anywhere near the amount of sodium, which is extracellular, which is mainly in the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. And that's why we lose so much for that reason, that being extracellular. Now, some athletes will lose smaller amounts than others. Others will lose huge amounts of sodium um, in, in comparison. How do you know? Well, for the last 15 years, I've been testing the yeah. sodium concentration of sweat. But another good indicator can be palatability. Okay. So, so with the with the electrolyte, the Coda electrolyte tablet that I formulated many years ago, um, the, reason, the the way I formulated it is that you can add more tablets to address your particular needs. Mm. So by taking the calories out, you're then not locked into a set volume. You, you can drink an amount based on how much you need, based on the temperature you're experiencing. But importantly. Some athletes might put three tablets in a bottle if they have a higher sodium concentration in their sweat. Um, some might put two, some might put one and a half, some might put one, some might put half a tablet. But it's dependent on um, how much sodium they lose in their sweat. Um, yeah. So you can do a test to find that out, or you can put um, an amount of tablets 
per 500 mil um, and just learn when you're out running what you feel is working best for you from a palatability perspective. Can that ever, because I'm one of your very high loss athletes when it comes to sodium loss, but I found once I got over two tabs in a bottle, it just got unwieldingly strong. Um, but I think that my number probably means, I, in fact, I work at, a, I didn't work at one and a half is what I work at per 500 mils. Um, when I think, you know, you're, your packet says begin at one tab in 500 mils, a relatively safe starting point to work this out. But I reckon my losses probably would actually do require a bit more than one and a half, but I can't get there with my palate. See, the, the thing for you is that you have a low sweat rate. Okay. So although you have a higher sodium concentration in your sweat, the accumulated amount that you lose isn't as high. Right. Now, if you had a higher sweat rate, I'd be a cactus. You, you would. <laughs> <laughs> I'd struggle. You, you'd find that you'd probably um, require a, a stronger form of, and that's the thing too, is like palatability is a good indicator. If I gave a three tablet mix to someone with a low sodium yeah. concentration in their sweat, they find it too overpowering. Yeah. Um, but I give that three tablet mix to someone with a high sodium concentration, um, you know, two and a half to three tab, they find it quite palatable. Oh, okay. Oh yeah. That actually tastes really good. Yeah. So, and which is then, then comes back to that changing temperatures and conditions because when I was in Singapore and you're about to head to Singapore to sponsor the Singapore marathon, which is really interesting. But, um, I did a two hour long run there one morning and cause it's so humid, particularly humidity, it's warm, but it's super humid. Mm. I got to the point where my clothes was so wet you could hear me sloshing in my shoes and my clothes and i i felt like i was losing so much power and i'm so sure it's because your sodium molecules drive your glucose absorption so i'd have a gel and nothing would change my energy levels would feel just through the floor and i got back and um jumped in the shower i just dumped my gear i just hung my gear that's right over it over some shower railings went off to find breakfast and all I could think about was plastic cheese. Now I don't eat cheese and I certainly don't want to eat plastic cheese, but all I could think about was plastic cheese. And I reckon it was just because it's, it's packed with salt. Yeah. Like, wow, what a craving. Mm -hmm. And I came back and because I had air conditioning in the room, my clothes were already dried and they were stiff as a board. Yeah. They were actually salt. crunchy yeah. from the salt. Yeah. Yeah. Well that, um, so that, that water, and this is the thing that, particularly for UTA, it's really important, particularly in the, in the warmer parts of the run, is when we sweat, that water that ends up in our skin comes from the water component of our blood. Our blood's around about 80% water. Mm -hmm. So as we're sweating, we're reducing blood volume. So that run you did in Singapore, um, on the two hours that you ran, you've got back, you've got a lot less blood available mm -hmm. than when you started. Now. With the sodium component, now this is obviously, it's rare and it's the extreme, but if the sodium, if the sodium levels in your blood drop too low, we can die. Mm. That's how important sodium is. Mm. Now, well, like I said, that's the extreme and it's rare, but from a performance perspective, how much does your sodium need to drop for it to impact on muscle function? Mm. So, and this is where it comes in um, to these long endurance events 
if you're not addressing these things properly earlier on, they're going to cause issues later on. Completely. And a huge sign of that is is cramping, just Mm. muscles getting into distress and they just can't get either the waste products away from them or the energy into them. Like there are so many issues. So cramping is just it. Like if you, you know, especially for runners, you start to feel like, your little toes or your calves start to feel like a bit crampy, twingy. I think that's always a classic example. And that's always my warning sign to get a bit more sodium in. And that's, that's honestly what I've had to do is like one and a half tabs is really all I can get my palate to. Mm. But then every now and then I stuff a whole tablet in my mouth. Mm. You know, if I've been out for six hours and the day's got hot and I've been sweating a lot and I, I can, I know my toes get twingy and stuff and I just chuck a whole tab in and then it's like rocket fuel. I'm off again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, and that's the thing too, that, um, you know, I've been solving muscle cramping for many, many years mm. and it's been sodium. Mm. Um, so, you know, everyone goes for these quick fixes, these, these products that are hitting the market. Mm-hmm. Now, if you address your needs properly, you don't need those quick mm-hmm. fixes. Don't wait for it to happen. Mm-hmm. Just manage your, your needs mm-hmm. properly. And if you do, um, you're less likely to experience muscle cramping, stomach issues, slowing down. Mm-hmm. It's about having that understanding that you need a certain amount yeah, um, and then and the day is going to demand it. So we've talked about that situation of UTA being a warm, sunny day, but the year I ran it, it was cold and wet all day. The whole day. And so you're not, if you just know that and you know your losses, you just know that you're not going to drink as much. Exactly. And you probably actually your intensity is going to be slightly lower. Well, that, and that's the, and the thing is, you, you're more likely to um, to realise that time that you've. That you've set yeah. because the cooler the conditions the better you can manage your losses in regards to hydration mm. but the key in those what happens a lot in those situations is that these athletes go in with this mentality about drinking a certain amount every single hour mm-hmm. and they don't like i said before they don't consider the temperatures yeah and that's what happened to us our first year we ran the overland track with a group and we had a whole bunch of queenslanders came down oh. and um used to drinking lots yeah and, and i had that. to jump on them after a couple of hours when i realized what was going on i was like stop it yeah. <laughs> stop drinking yeah. otherwise you're going to be vomiting all the way down the track yeah. so <laughs> and luckily we, we got on top of it early but mm. um but yeah, they were all starting to complain about upset tummies and it was like two degrees and icy on the boardwalks yeah. <laughs> around Cradle Mountains. So it was a perfect example of that. Mm. Um, okay. Um, and the final thing I had down was just just the, the use of caffeine in this event. Um, you know, I worked with athletes last year who took 21, 22 hours to finish um, caffeine. What would be your recommendation for that? Let's just talk about the everyday person stepping up to this event for the first time, particularly. Like, yeah. when do you when do you bring that into your A game? Okay, so firstly, there's no one size fits all. Mm-hmm. Some people will have zero response to caffeine. They'll take, and we, I've researched it quite heavily, um, working out how much caffeine to put in our energy gels. And regardless of the amount, some athletes just did not respond at all to it. Um, some had a mild response when the feedback was, yeah, this is a good amount. And I felt, yeah, I felt a little bit then. But then others, it's like... Makes my teeth chatter. Oh, it's like... It makes my feel. teeth chatter. Yeah. Literally. The, these athletes <laughs> would take caffeine and they would just go... They would just find a whole new gear. 
Um, so once again, um, it's a very individual thing, but caffeine doesn't give you ever, uh, extra energy. It just alters the perception of how you feel. And the best time to consume it is when you're feeling that mental fatigue. It's not, there, there's a time that you can take it too early in these mm. endurance events and that's what you don't want to do. You don't want to be running along in the first part of the event feeling, oh, I feel fantastic and running beyond the intensity that you'd planned to. Because you, you can easily do that because you, it, it, it's giving you a perceived perception of how you feel. But what happens there is that that back end of the run, you've used up too much energy in that first part. So yeah. um, that's, that's the time to take it. it is, sort of towards the later part of the event where those negative thoughts start to creep in like why did I even start to do this race I feel oh, I've still got those stairs to climb and you start thinking negative thoughts that's the time to take actually it. I really love the way you described that I actually never never heard it in those exact words but when you mentally feel like you need it as opposed to physical mm-hmm. i think that's a big risk and i've seen that play out even in like immediate networks around me of friends and family where they um the amount that they've trained in preparation for what we're setting out to do probably wasn't enough and they physically fatigue too early or they go in with a lot of fatigue and are fatiguing early and think oh, i'll have some caffeine to kind of zoom me through but it sort of begins to dig like a bigger and bigger and bigger hole um so i love that distinction between the mental fatigue and the physical fatigue you'd never use caffeine if it's a physical fatigue correct yeah you should be like trying to get a bit more energy in the tank or really stopping and thinking about what en- what exertion level you're working at yeah from pacing, a physical perspective yeah exactly through. have i been yeah. running at the intensity that i planned yeah um have i and this is the thing too that um, athletes need to understand is that having too much of something can have the same impact as not having enough yes so you know you need to think it's only cool and i've drunk that much if i drunk too much because drinking too much just throws everything out of balance. Mm. So that's why you need to be really careful in that first part of the event. Um, and can I then throw that in just on that, because that made me think of it, is when Graham was having an electrolyte that was too strong for him and he was drinking a bit too much for his losses, so um, over-drinking per how much sweat he has or sweats out, he would say i'm so thirsty i'm so so thirsty and he'd keep drinking and that was purely because it what he was drinking was getting stuck in his gut and not getting into the bloodstream so he was setting off his thirst responses you know like so you say you get the same symptoms exactly even though he's having too much and another person might have that symptom and be not having enough Mm. and so it feels like it starts to get confusing, but I think it keeps coming back to that you just have to practice and you just have to know yourself and you just got to work out your numbers. Spot on <laughs> and no one knows you better than you. Yeah. Um, you know, how your stomach's feeling, how you felt taking that amount of calories each hour. Yeah, that actually worked well. I felt really, actually I felt a lot stronger than I did normally or actually it might have been a bit too much. I might reduce that a bit next time. But it's... It's not difficult. Mm-hmm. You're going out for, to do those runs anyway. So learn from 
from those run and, and they've got to be key sessions you know it's, it's mm-hmm. got to be a, a you know a decent um, duration um, and then you need to go okay if I I think I feel like I can tolerate this amount for this many hours mm-hmm. but the good thing by separating your hydration and calories is that you can make changes mm-hmm. along the way if you feel actually the, the amount of calories I'm going to back that off a bit or you know what my stomach feels clear I'm, I might just up that a bit Mm-hmm. You can't do that with a pre-mix. No. When, when you've got calories in your drink, you're locked in. Yeah. So that's the another great thing about separating hydration and calories is you can make those changes along the way. And so, would you recommend? Um, would you recommend solids? And when would you recommend solid foods for athletes who are going to be out there for eight to twenty-two? 28 hours, yeah. 28 hours, mm. like, what's your, I know what I recommend, but I'm just kind of curious to know what you recommend. Yeah, oh, I, I don't recommend. I, I, what I do is, firstly, that athlete needs to have an understanding of how many calories that they're going to consume per hour, whether that's 150, whether it's 290, whatever it might be. There's, there's no recommendation in regard to um, what they're going to consume because everyone is so different. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some athletes that I work with who do 24-hour mountain bike races and they will take three gels every hour for that 24 hours. Now, I, I, there's no way I can do that. Mm-hmm. As soon as they take some solid foods, th- th- it just destroys their stomach. Now, that, that's an individual but and that's what their preference is. Mm. There's other athletes who might take gels for a couple of hours and then have a solid food option. Um, there's athletes who will do one gel with some solid food options each hour. There's, there's yeah, no right see, or wrong. Yeah, like I, I basically use gels and glucose tabs and that's about it, a few dates. But then I use your bars when it gets to like lunchtime or breakfast time you know because my body is so programmed to eat breakfast lunch and dinner at mm. certain times of the day and I get this like hollow feeling or, or I need to kind of break the day up like mm. that was morning done dusted now yeah. I'm entering the afternoon and it's kind of like a, a positive switching of gears um so yeah and everyone is different and then sometimes like if I'm just feeling really low um in energy I'll just nibble away at a bar because I just it's sort of like I just feel like a gel mentally isn't telling my brain I've had some substance no, in it do you know what I mean? yeah 100% yeah. so with with the gel and because it's such a good fuel for these sorts of things is that it, it's it's in the same form that all foods converted to kind mm-hmm. so when you're taking a gel, you're bypassing all those normal digestive um, processes. Now, the good thing about that is it uses a very, very small amount of energy, and that's why we call it a low thermic effect, mm. and it's metabolized very quickly. But I think a lot of the time, the brain doesn't recognize that you've eaten something. So for some athletes, they need to have that solid food option, You know, whether it's every couple of hours or whenever it might be, and every hour or every three hours or every four hours. Um, they need that solid food option just for the brain to go, okay, this, yeah, there is some food going in. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah you, so it's on. almost like a trick to the system. Yeah. Yeah, 
Huh, okay. And the fine, probably the finer, finer one actually when I think about it is the checkpoints. And this is where I've had athletes who've really got down a nutrition strategy and they're nailing it. And then they step into these events where you get to like the aquatic center or the hospital and they lay out a freaking buffet for you. And you've got crews who are there like thrusting things in your faces and they guzzle away at the two minute noodles or the mug of soup and stuff and then wonder why like half an hour down the track, if not earlier, they're vomiting, you know. So I guess like I'm just wondering You've worked with enough enough athletes as well to have a, <laughs> a strategy for coping with checkpoints. Mm-hmm. And what do you what do you recommend, or like how do you teach people about the etiquette at a checkpoint as an yeah. athlete? And that's a good thing. That, that's a good point because there is um, lots of choice. You know, there's uh, there's bakery goods, there's chips, fruit there's fruit cake, watermelon, soup, bananas, all sorts of things. Now. You've got to be thinking about, you, you haven't finished the race yet. So at elevated heart rate, your stomach's limited to what it can consume. Um, in training, you know, and like we keep saying, you've got six months to get an idea of what your stomach can comfortably tolerate um, each hour at elevated heart rate at the pace you want to run. Um, and there's going to be times where you're going to see something. Now, by, by all means, grab that because it might be just something that you, you just feel like, but don't throw it down. Take small, it's like, take it with you, keep moving, and just take small amounts as you go along. Don't mm-hmm. shovel it down because your stomach's compromised. But do you know what I also think personally is, um, let's go back to my like sliced plastic cheese craving that I had in Singapore. We just said it was the salt. Mm. And so when I've come through a checkpoint and I've seen the fruitcake and I've gone, oh, I could really murder that now. I've actually asked myself, what is that? What is in the fruitcake that I'm craving? Because it's not the fruitcake, because I wouldn't normally eat fruitcake. I mean, I might maybe, but I would never go out and buy myself fruitcake in the supermarket. Um, So I've normally said, well, it's energy. And clearly, clearly craving some energy and maybe something slightly solid. So I get out your bar that's got dates in it and I have like half a bar and I'm like, perfect, done. And I don't even think about the fruitcake again. But if I was craving like the soup, I'd be saying to someone, have you had enough fluids? Have you had enough salt? Yeah. Um, well, so- and that, yeah, spot on. Um, if you are looking for salty um, foods, um, it means you, you haven't addressed your Yes, yeah, so. Yeah. Um, That's why, like, when you have that conversation with athletes, you're like, what do you crave after a long, hard run? And they go, salty chips. Yeah. You're like, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> you're craving a bit of energy, but mainly you're craving salt. Yeah. yeah. So, if you had a, going back to Singapore, that two hour run, if you had managed your sodium losses better in that two hour run, you probably would have been looking for that cheese afterwards. <laughs> yeah. So that's, awesome. that's why it's really important that um, you need to multiply how many hours you're going to be out on course by what your likely losses are going to be because then, then you start seeing some big numbers and then you start really thinking about, right, okay, I need to really manage this properly because if I'm losing 8,000, if I'm expending 8,000 calories, I need to make sure I can get 
at least 3,000 back into me over yeah. that time. And again, make it a simple metaphor for yourself. You know, how many bananas is 8,000 calories? <laughs> what, how, many, how many calories is in a banana? You well, a medium-sized banana is about 130 calories. Okay, so let's say it's 100 calories. Yeah. That's like 80 bananas mm. that you're burning to run 100K. Yeah. Over however over, many hours. Over 20 hours burning 400 calories an hour. Yeah. That's, yeah, and someone might say that to me, like to run a marathon just above your base metabolism you're burning 12 bananas and 20 slices of bread at that intensity that mm. I used to run the marathon at. Yeah. So like it is important to have this understanding because when you put one jelly in every 45 minutes or whatever it is, like it ain't tuppence compared to what you're actually no, burning. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I keep coming back to energy gels is that energy to volume ratio. They're just the best. It's the best. You've got a yeah. high amount of calories but in a small volume. So it's not putting a lot of pressure on the stomach. Yeah. You know, people go, oh, I can't do gels. Well, you can't do gels if you've got all that sugar in your drink. Mm. Take the sugar out of your drink and you can do gels just fine. Yeah. Yeah. And also put some sodium in your drink. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. yeah. And also just say to yourself, like, it's not a picnic princess. You know, no. if you want to go out and have a picnic, I mean, maybe go and choose to walk the overland track and take your time. Mm. But if you really are, you know, wanting to see what this whole ultra running business is all about, like, it isn't a picnic. And you can have the yummy munchy foods at the end when your stomach, stomach settles down. I mean, the next day is just glorious. You just feel like you can eat till the cows come home and you just like it all tastes amazing so yeah so um no it's so it's so good to be back behind the microphone with you like and, and really cool like i feel like today is actually really um really highlighted a few new little learning tips for me as well just i loved what you said about caffeine is like you know when you've got mental fatigue you know versus physical fatigue mm-hmm. um that was really helpful for me so i'm pretty sure like athletes are really going to get something out of this so i probably um had a question in if an athlete wants to take their studies on themselves to a new level and they want to learn about their sodium loss are you are you doing sweat testing at the moment for yeah. athletes yeah. yeah so we can put some links on the show note pages through to your testing yeah yeah um and obviously through to your new products and uh, the sample packs and things that people can try um yeah, and then pretty much after that, I just would also say that this is something you have to trial in training. And the training plans that I've put together have actually put a lot of like, this is where I would try nutrition. This is when you really need to be thinking about this element of your hydration and really try to kind of spell that out to people so mm-hmm. it's not not completely leaving everyone to sort of winging it. So Yeah. Yeah, so hopefully between what you're doing and what I'm doing, you know, we can – get everyone at the finish line feeling amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think it was, um, it wasn't too far off 20, to, I think 20 to 25% of the field not finishing the 100 last year. Yeah. So, you know, I really want to be part of making that percentage yeah. drop, you know, considerably. Yeah, least. that would be really interesting yeah. to see how that changes with the education that yeah. you're providing. And yeah. it's such a big commitment to this event. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's a huge day. Yeah. Um, so preparation, 100% key. You can't take this thing lightly. No, and it's hard for it not to become a huge part of your psychology, really, from now on till the event. And I 
I do remember the stress levels going up and up and up as it gets closer and the reality of spending such a long period of time on your feet. So the sooner you get a jump start on your preparation, the more calm you're going to feel kind of leading up to the event. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Make all those mistakes in training. Super awesome note to finish on. Thanks, Daz. Thank you. Yeah, and enjoy Singapore.